All right, Proverbs chapter 9. A few weeks after uh, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy, the U.S. actually sent in a, a troop of soldiers. It's called the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. You may, if you've ever heard of them, you may know them better as the Ghost Army. The Ghost Army was a, a, a troop that was maybe more like a T-R-O-U-P-E troop, kind of like they were artists, and they were designers, and they were actors, and they were actually sent in to deceive. And they had these inflatable tanks that they would set up, and as, as planes flew over, it would look like the army had all these tanks, and they would play through these loudspeakers, the sound of thousands of tanks rolling in. And, then, and, and these, these actors would go into you know, European towns, and they would talk loosely about troop movements, and their whole goal was just to deceive the enemy, right? They would even, you know, purposely sort of put out these radio channels that could very easily be listened into and just seek to deceive. And, and this ghost army was actually wildly effective. They didn't kill anybody. They weren't out to actually kill anybody. They were just out to deceive, and they actually ended up saving uh, they've been credited with saving thousands of lives, redirecting the attention of, uh, of the enemy and drawing the fire so that then the real army could swoop in. So as I think about that, then the, this ghost army that's out to deceive, I think it's actually a fitting metaphor. Now, we're Americans. We, we applaud what the ghost army did. We're glad they did that. But let me use it as sort of a negative thing here, the deception piece. I think there, as we've walked through the book of Proverbs, we hear these different voices calling out, and we might say those are like ghost armies seeking to deceive, seeking to lead astray, exaggerating the threat over here so it draws your attention away from God and His Word and what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. And you will then be left vulnerable to being deceived, being led astray, walking the path of folly. Many in this culture... And have since Genesis 3, right? Intend to deceive. Intend to deceive. So the goal of Proverbs chapter 9 is then to just unmask what, what, what the, the, uh, Solomon calls foolishness or woman folly, right? Just so, sort of contrast foolishness, which is living as if God does not exist, right? The, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So foolishness is living as if there is no God, there is no accountability, there is no authority over you. You live your way in your world for your joy and your own satisfaction, right? That's folly. And so what Proverbs 9 does is sort of rips the mask off of folly and highlights the beauty and glory of God's wisdom. All right, so that's where we're going. The text, Proverbs 9, it's, it's three sort of sections of six verses each. And what happens is, the first and third, sort of as bookends, um, are these ladies who are throwing different parties and have sent out different or the same invitation, actually, to their different parties. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of look at the bookends first, this sort of metaphorical party that's going on, these invitations are going out, and then what happens in the middle, sort of all the poetic imagery is just stripped away, and it sort of tells you, like, this is what I'm talking about. All right, so we'll end in the middle there actually. So let's look there in the first six verses and see wisdom's invitation. Wisdom's invitation. Look there in verse one. 
Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. So Proverbs chapter 9 actually opens with wisdom preparing for this banquet, this party. Now the lady described here, we've, we've talked about this a lot in, in Proverbs, the lady described here in our text, lady wisdom is a, a poetic image of the wisdom of God. And this is the sort of wisdom that God offers to those who would humbly come to him and trust in him. In fact, if you were here last week, we were in chapter 8, and, and we saw some, some overlap between the sort of words that wisdom uses and what's said to be true of Christ in the New Testament. So we argued this, that, that lady wisdom is sort of a metaphor. It's a, it's a poetic image of God's wisdom that is ultimately pointing forward to Christ who, will come, who came to this earth and perfectly imaged the Father, right? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of his nature. So we might say then Lady Wisdom is sort of a shadow of what is to come. Well, what is to come? Well, it was Christ who perfectly reveals God to us, including God's wisdom. So this is poetic imagery here, capturing the wisdom of God, ultimately pointing us forward to Christ. And so here stands this this lady, right? We've seen in Proverbs a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful lady, right? And she has built this magnificent house. And so she, she's built her house. It's adorned with these seven pillars, right? And a lot of times people get a little weird with numbers in the Bible, right? So that every number represents something here or there. And, you know, if somebody says they have a code to crack the Bible, just walk away, all right? But I do think there's some imagery here with this, these seven pillars imaging the perfection and the completeness of God's wisdom. Wisdom is rich. Wisdom is complete. God is fully wise in every way. There's nothing lacking in Him. There's no one that, you know, Paul says at the end of Rome, or Romans 11, there's no one who can advise God, right? No one can offer counsel to him. There is nothing that he has not considered. There are no blind spots in his instruction. He's never once said or thought, I did not see that coming. He is all wise all the time. His wisdom is complete and it is perfect. And inside this, this beautiful home then with the seven pillars, wisdom is preparing this luxurious feast. Right there in verse 2, it says, she has slaughtered her beasts. Right? She slaughtered her beasts in preparation for the party that she is throwing. Now, it's hard for us as, as Americans to appreciate the fact that meat was a luxury. Right? We eat meat all the time. Most of us, a lot of us, eat meat all the time. But often in Scripture, you know, meat is seen as more of a celebratory event. Right? This is a big deal. Let's, let's kill an animal and let's eat it. Right, so what we see in the text, actually, is Lady Wisdom is sparing no expense. This is a celebration. She's, she's mixed her wine with, with various spices to make it even more enjoyable. And so you get this image of this party that you and I should want to be at. Right? We should desire 
that. And one of the things I love about what Proverbs has done for us, we've been walking through one through chapters one through nine. After Labor Day, we'll get back into the gospel of Luke. But one of the things that I love about this chapter is it doesn't just tell you what to do. It sort of holds up this wonderful image of what you should actually be desiring and pursuing. It describes for us the beauty and the desirability of God, particularly His wisdom. And it holds it up there as something to be delighted in, to be treasured, to be valued, and therefore we ought to pursue this. right? And it speaks a language that we speak. Right? Food and parties. All right? We speak that sort of language. And it's sort of lifting up the glory of wisdom. And so the table is set there by the end of verse 2. She's got this beautiful mansion. She's got her feast. She's ready to receive her guests. Right? And you might think, man, who is, who is fit for this? Right? Who is fit for this feast? I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and you're like underdressed, you're like out of place, you're like, what am I even doing at this nice restaurant? I don't even know how to order, right? I don't even know how to interpret the menu. Well, we might be thinking that this sort of party is like for the noble, the rich, it's for the accomplished, it's for the esteemed. But then we look at verse 3 and 4. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. She's inviting the simple, those who lack sense. She's also sent out her, her, her servants to just proclaim it, just proclaim it from the highest place in the town. Whoever will come in here. We saw that in chapter 8, that this is a public cause, a public invite. God hasn't hidden himself. He hasn't hidden wisdom. This is a party for all those who are willing to humble themselves and come to him. Aren't we reminded of Christ here? We might think, of the, we, we might think similarly of Christ, that, that as he comes, he would dine with nobles and dignitaries. In all his glory, right, the creator of all things, the Son of God, came and dwelt among us. And he dined with tax collectors and sinners. And they were the ones. They were the ones who were actually willing to turn and trust in him. They saw their sin clearly. The call goes out to the simple. The simple are those who are sort of standing at the crossroads. Which way, which path will I take? In this life, we're walking down a path and we sort of come to these crossroads. Which way will I go? Will I walk in God's wisdom or will I walk in my own wisdom, a.k.a. folly? Will I follow Christ or will I follow myself? Will I humble myself? Will I lower myself? Will I give up? Will I be willing to sort of lay on, on the altar my dreams, my goals, my hopes, my desires, my passions, and follow Christ, or will I go, do, go and do my thing my way and fulfill my desires? Really, it's, it's sort of an image. We're, we're, on, we're on the path. Which of these two ladies that are calling out to us, we'll see folly here in a minute, which of these two ladies will we choose to listen to? If you are simple, turn in here, she says. Do you lack wisdom? Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have 
midst. So she's calling out, all who are willing, come. I think it's a comfort to us to know that God is not stingy. God is not holding out. He desires to share himself with us. We see that in the fact that he sent his son, Christ. We should rejoice in the fact that God freely bestows wisdom on all those who ask of him. He has all wisdom and he's, he's generous with it. Right? When you're not worried about running out of something, you can be generous with it. And so we've seen, and we, we've been arguing this, that there is no wisdom apart from God, and there is no knowing God apart from Christ. And so possessing this sort of wisdom begins with knowing Christ. We see there in verse 6, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Leaving your, your, your simple ways, that's not just a, a sort of change of attitude, change of, uh, change of you know, outlook on life. This is repentance. It's leaving your old ways and turning to God, embracing God's wisdom. And so if you're in Christ this morning, if, if, you are, if you are a Christian, you are trusting in Christ, I would say, uh, you know, the call for us is to sort of keep returning to the feast, so to speak. Keep coming to God for wisdom, rehearsing in our own minds the glory of the gospel, choosing every day not to lean on my own understanding, but to trust in God's revealed will, to seek to have my mind renewed according to the word of God and hiding it in my heart that I might not sin against God. So you've got these, these two parties, right? And it seems like such an obvious decision. But there's a competing invitation. And we'll see, like, as sad and pathetic as the second party is, we're actually inclined to it, right? We actually lean towards the sad and the pathetic. The right answer is easy, but the reality is our hearts are complicated. And our hearts outside of Christ and the renewing work of Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. So we're actually born, the Bible says, with an inclination towards folly. So even though the decision is obvious, it's not quite that easy. Let's look secondly then at wisdom's opposite or, or, or folly's invitation. Look there in verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. So as we move on from, from wisdom, who's got this beautiful mansion, beautiful party, we move to this like chaotic woman named folly. And if if, if wisdom, if Lady Wisdom is, is a picture of God's wisdom and you can't just like pull attributes of God off of him, so it, in some sense it's a picture of the Lord himself, then woman folly is a, is a picture, a poetic image, a personification of the idols that a person living in Israel would be tempted to worship in place of Yahweh, the one true God. So what's happening in Proverbs chapter 9 for the original reader would say, are you going to follow the idols of, this, of the surrounding nations or will you commit yourself to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel? 
And here's why I, I say that. Because in the text, it says that both of these ladies are calling out from the highest places in the town. Right? We saw that with woman wisdom there at the end of verse 3. From the highest places in the town, her invitation goes forth. We'll look there in verse 14. Where's, where's woman folly at? She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. Well, what's, what's significant about that? What's significant of being in the highest place in the city? Well, the significance of that is in ancient Israel and surrounding nations, it was the high places in the city where they would put a temple and they would fill that temple with their God. Or in Israel's case, Israel, or Jerusalem sits on a hill and there's their temple up in the high places. Right? I'm reading right now First and Second Kings. And you, if you've read First and Second Kings and you know, if you've been around here, Jeff has preached through First and Second Kings, but you know, as I'm reading through that, you see that these kings are judged on whether or not they were willing to go tear down the idols in the high places. Right? Or or some kings, oh, he did okay, but the one thing he didn't do was tear down the idols in the high places or the temples. So these temples and these idols would be erected in the high places in, in, in a city. And this is contrasted with the temple in Jerusalem. So the, the idea is idolatry. Will we, will we or, or will the original reader too, bow down to Yahweh or will they bow down to worthless idols? So as we today, right, we're not, we're not in ancient Israel, as we think about how this might apply to us, we might understand woman folly as anyone or anything who would seek to pull you away from Christ, right? Sort of the New, you know, the, the New Testament talks about idolatry as well, but it also talks about the lusts of the heart. And I don't think it's altogether different from the idolatry that would exist in the Old Testament because why, so often, why would someone come before an idol? Because that idol is going to give you something. It's going to give you crops, or it's going to give you babies, or it's going to give you security. It's going to give you success in war. Right? And the New Testament talks about these lusts of the heart that aren't altogether different from the idols, the physical idols that these people would be tempted to bow down to. We want popularity. We want success. We want whatever our heart is going after. So you see these two competing invitations. Which, which will you follow? Will you, will you hear from God or will you follow the wisdom of this world that seeks to pull you away from Christ? God here, we've seen, invites you to life and joy and celebration and freedom and eternal rest, enjoying all of His goodness and enjoying all of His benefits. Well, we have these idols who are wooing the false gods of this world could be something like materialism, right? If I can just get more stuff, then I'll, I'll finally be satisfied. Well, you, you know as well as I do, like we live in a privileged uh, world, right? We got a lot of stuff. And guess what? It's not enough, right? When I get a new fly rod, guess what I want? A better one. Maybe it's acceptance. If more people would praise me, if more people would, would feed my ego, then I'd be satisfied. Or maybe it's pleasure. If I could just have unmitigated fulfillment of my own desires. 
then I would know joy. Right? And so what Proverbs 9 does is sort of unmask the lie that that is. Right? The promise is here's a party. These idols are offering a party. But the reality is it only produces death. Right? So folly is loud and boisterous. Right? You get the sense as you read, like, wisdom is dignified. And here is, here is folly, just like sitting on a camping chair, just like yelling out as you're walking by. Right? She's seductive, the text says. It means something like undisciplined. She knows no shame. She has no shame of, you know, sort of leading others astray. She doesn't care about right and wrong. Whereas wisdom has her beautiful seven-pillared home, folly is just kind of sitting there, calling out annoyingly, loudly to those who pass by. She's screaming at you. She calls out to those who are going straight on the way, which would be your life as you're living this life. Folly's calling out. Wisdom's calling out. And so interestingly, what you see is this parallelism in the, in the two uh, sections that we're looking at, right? So you might think that folly's message is going to be completely different from wisdom's message, right? But actually, she's saying the same thing. Whoever is simple, look in verse 16. We saw the exact same thing in verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, and then she has stolen water and, um, and bread eaten in secret. What, what she's doing, she's actually appealing to the same audience. She's actually calling out to the same people. And as you see this parallel, parallelism, Woman folly actually imitates lady wisdom. And so you have to be discerning and you have to be careful and you have to seek God's wisdom in order to discern His voice above, like we talk about like the cultural air that we're just breathing. And, And you're sort of surrounded by all these things all the time. And it can deceive us because we think, oh, this must be what's normal because this is what everybody in my life is talking about. Well, we need to be discerning. Right, Paul warned in Colossians with, with the problem of so many of these deceitful sort of teachings. You know, in Colossians, he mentions like legalism, which is, uh, you know, thinking you can earn your own righteousness. He mentions asceticism, which thinking I can kind of like bring my own body into submission through my own willpower. He mentions these weird like mysticism. They're trying to get themselves all worked up religiously, worshiping angels, trying to have visions. Right, And what he actually says, particularly about legalism, is the problem is it has the appearance of wisdom. It looks like wisdom, but it is of no advantage in putting to death the desires of the flesh. So don't be fooled. The invitations sound the same, same audience, but the parties are quite different. In fact, look at her appeal. Stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And when we're, th- when we're thinking rightly, we would say, uh, that's it? Right? You got bread and water 
and and Lady Wisdom over here, she slaughtered her beast. She's got this wine mixed with with spices. Right? Where's the meat? Where's the wine? Why in the world would I want to go to that party? But then notice, like with with the 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 allure with which she tries to make the appeal. Right? It's stolen water, and it's it's bread eaten in secret. It's this the secrecy. Right? It's, it's no good. It's just bread and water. But she tries to make it appealing. Right? There's this restaurant in Springfield called Mexican Villa, and it is the worst. And so many people in Springfield just love it. It's sort of like a local legend. And I'm always telling people, like, this is so bad. And so many of you remember Pastor Bob Stevenson from Graceway. He's preached here before. If you've been around here a while, you, you may have met Pastor Bob, but I was telling Pastor Bob one time, I'm like, Pastor, it is so nasty. And he's like, I know, but sometimes you crave nasty. <laughs> and that's the problem, right? This, this bread and this water, like sometimes our hearts are just drawn to that. We were born that way. We aren't just kind of neutral observers who always choose the most logical option. There's something in the Bible called the deceitfulness of sin. There's something called our own flesh that desires that which is forbidden. The forbidden thing seems intriguing to us, seems desirous to our hearts. We're tempted to believe the same lie that captured Adam and Eve, that God is holding out on you, that God is holding something back from you. And what's the implied uh, thinking behind that? That God is not altogether good. That God is not altogether good. So we must go outside of His sort of boundaries. We must go outside of His revealed will to us in order to grab that which can really satisfy. Right? We think that God is being selfish and holding back something from us. That's why we need to, to, to again, we said preach the gospel to yourself, thinking about Romans chapter 8, that if God did not withhold His own Son, how will He not freely, with Christ, give us all things, right? He's not holding anything back. So Lady Folly, she's deceitful in the fact that she disguises the, the terrible nature of her party. It's a secret meal. It's, it's meant to entice. But God in His grace this morning sort of pulls back the curtain. He exposes the ruse. And we get verse 18, which is the truth about her. The truth about walking in this world as if God does not exist, as if He has no authority over you. Verse 18, but He does not know. This is the one that's passing, walking through life. He does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This isn't a party after all, is it? It's actually a funeral. Ed Welch, in his book, Addictions, um, you know, the subtitle of his book, Addictions, is A Banquet in the Grave. It's a banquet in the grave. If you choose to, to, to live life your way, to reject God and, and His way, you come expecting this sort of life-sustaining, joy-filled experience. And the text says, Instead, you die. Right? And obviously, this isn't instant death. But foolishness and sin are, are killers. 
they ensnare the victim, they destroy their lives, and ultimately, if someone does not repent of their sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, leaves them eternally separated from God forever. When we choose folly, we can expect grave outcomes in all the sense, all the senses. Right? In fact, if you are, even if you are in Christ this morning, I think it helps us to, to sort of unmask what sin produces in our lives. You might just consider that the worst possible outcome of any particular sin. We've seen this all throughout the, the, the book of Proverbs. It gets even more clear in chapters 10 through 31. That to walk in foolishness actually complicates life. Right? That's not a prosperity gospel thing. It's not, it's not a one-to-one. We know people that are maybe, you know, read Psalm 73 this afternoon. It can happen where somebody's walking against God and they seem outwardly at least to be flourishing. But generally, Proverbs 13, 15 holds true the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. So even as we think about God may actually keep us from the full consequences of our sin, maybe it would help us to fight against our own sin, to, to think about what is, the, what is the outcome of this? How could this blow up? Maybe we can unmask woman folly a bit like Solomon does for us here in Proverbs chapter 9. The guests at this party are found in the depths of Sheol. Right? We... Uh, We've said Sheol a lot. It's, it's sometimes used just as like the grave, the place of the dead, but oftentimes it carries with it an idea of judgment, even the dwelling place of the wicked. And so the ultimate warning is that those who scoff at God, those who refuse to come to Him, are found to be separated from all of God's goodness for all of eternity. There's only wrath to bear for those who reject the wrath-bearing sacrifice of Christ. In fact, Jesus said it's the wise person, right? We've been talking a lot about wisdom. Jesus says it's the wise person that builds his house on the rock. And when the storm comes, I would say that storm is God's judgment. When judgment falls, if you've built your life on Christ, then you might stand. It's the foolish one who builds his, his house on the sand. And when judgment falls, it cannot withstand judgments. There are two parties, two ways to live, two paths, two foundations on which you might build your life. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Well, let's think about then that middle text, verses 7 through 12. So falling right in between these two invitations, Right? We said this middle section kind of strips away the metaphorical language and speaks plainly to us about wisdom. And so God in His Word to us sort of sketches in both sides. What does it look like to be wise? What does it look like to be foolish? Look there in verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So one of the hard things about walking consistent with God's wisdom is that we are indeed surrounded. We mentioned these ghost armies, these opposing voices that are sort of walking in the opposite direction, wanting you to come down the path with them. 
And that's why we saw Solomon in chapter 4, like pleading, don't go down the path. Don't step foot on the path. Don't walk the path of folly. Avoid it. Do not go down it. Turn away from it and pass on, he said. And so as we, as we walk through this life, there, there's a, a type of person that Proverbs talks about called the scoffer. Right? The scoffer is mentioned in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 12. And the scoffer is, is beyond the, the simple, right? The simple hasn't made up his mind. Beyond the fool, the fool says in his heart there is no God, but we've seen wisdom even calling out to the fool in, in Proverbs. The scoffer is the one who is so hardened that he, he, he mocks and he abuses those who are walking in wisdom, or at least trying to walk in wisdom. He insists on his own way. The scoffer is not only content to sort of walk the path of folly, he's not content with you doing it. Right? He chooses to ridicule those who would choose lady wisdom over lady folly. And this, this scoffer, right? That can be a powerful voice. That can be a powerful voice, especially uh, for, for, well, for all of us, but particularly for our young folks. Nobody wants to be mocked or ridiculed. Right? Nobody wants to be made fun of. You know, if somebody makes fun of the thing that you hold most dearly, it might cause you to wonder whether you've given your life to someone or something that, that is worth being ridiculed or worth being laughed at. So what does God do? He unmasks the scoffer. So don't listen to the scoffer. He, he, he really shows us the true colors of the mocker so that then we can see the beauty of God's wisdom and that if you have given your life to Christ, He is indeed worth following with everything you have. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the world says. Look how he mocks the mocker there in verse 7. If you try to uh, correct the scoffer, you incur abuse and injury. Well, the defining characteristic of the scoffer is he does not want to hear correction. He does not want reproof. He does not want counsel. Instead, what does he respond with? He responds with abuse and by inflicting injury. He will hate you there in verse 8 if you seek to reprove him or her. He says, in fact, there's, there's times where it's appropriate. Don't, don't even address the scoffer. Don't even address the mocker. Right? This is similar, I think, to Jesus' warning. To not cast your pearls before swine as they will trample it underfoot. Well, the scoffer doesn't hear correction or rebuke, and then he contrasts it, right? It is not so with the wise person. It is not so with the one who walks in wisdom. What about the, what about the wise? Well, if you reprove a wise man, he will love you. The scoffer rejects wisdom. The wise person accepts wisdom and counsel. So a question for us to consider this morning is, are you willing to hear counsel? Are you willing to hear wisdom? Are you teachable? Or do you know better at all times than those who are around you? Are you correctable? Have you been sort of confronted, maybe by uh, an elder, maybe by a brother or sister in Christ, who, who who's genuinely sought to try to love you and try to point out a blind spot, and, and you respond with mockery or abuse or gossip or slander? Or kids, how have you responded when parents have corrected you? Teenagers, when your phone gets taken away, what's your reaction? To scoff or to receive correction? 
Well, the reality is we don't often receive correction well because we're proud, right? That pride still lurks in our hearts. And what, what we see clearly in that middle section is that wise people are humble people. Wise people are humble people. Where you find true humility, you will find wisdom. Why? Because the wise person knows he needs to grow. The wise person knows that she hasn't quite arrived yet. She needs the counsel of those around her. Knows and recognizes that I need the body of Christ to sort of speak truth into my life because I don't have it all figured out. In fact, if, if, you, if, if you knew my heart, you know that I'm, I'm a mess, right? That's, that's humi- humility that's willing to be open to receive counsel and help. So the scoffer then sort of spirals down into his own world, spiraling into more foolishness because he refuses to hear from others, refuses counsel, refuses wisdom. And so that, that, just, makes common, that just makes sense to us. Only those who hear and respond to wisdom grow still wiser. Right? The scoffer is doomed to repeat his sinful behavior because he refuses to hear so ultimately, ultimately, what we need then is a change of heart, right? We need a change of heart in order to be wise. We can't just buckle down and say, all right, I'll just read a bunch of books and then I'll get wise. We need a heart change. And that's why verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We said that this is the banner that should hang over the book of Proverbs. As you read Proverbs, don't let this 9.10 or 1.7 escape your thinking. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? That, that sort of drives everything else in this book. That there will be no wisdom apart from a, a, a change in our disposition, from proudly trusting in ourselves to humbly and reverently trusting God through Christ, right? The fear of the Lord is the foundation to any growth in wisdom. So we're not just mechanically trying to change a few parts of our life. We recognize that we needed the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to change our disposition towards Him, to, from, from scoffing to mocking to, to living as if He doesn't exist, to humbly seeking to, to love and worship and glorify Him. Because there is no wisdom found outside of him. Right? And Paul makes that like super clear in Romans 1 when he says, seeking to become wise, they became fools. What's he saying? Like, well, trying to find wisdom apart from God himself leads to foolishness. Seeking to become wise, they became fools. So when a person suppresses the truth about God, they become darkened in their understanding. They became, become incapable of seeing what is true and, and, and right. They don't interpret the world around them according to truth and the revelation that God has given. They live in darkness. We lived in darkness. right? And into this darkness, God has sent His Son, the light of the world. John 1, 4, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right into this darkness, God shines light by sending His Son, and this, this light who is Christ is life. He is eternal life. And we see that echoed in, in our text here. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. 
Wisdom cries out, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I have mixed, and you will live. If you eat of the bread and you drink of the wine, you will live. Right, and we've, we've been saying, right, that she's sort of saying things that re- sound like Christ. Right? Does that sound like something that Jesus said, eat, eat of the bread, drink of the wine, you will live. Jesus said this in John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I, just, I love in John chapter 6, Jesus sort of develops as he says, I came to give bread. But eventually he just shows his whole card. He says, the, the bread is actually myself. Right? I am the bread of life. Partake of me, which is I believe. Believe in Christ and find life. Right? There's so much on, on the line. These two paths are not like one will make, it will make your life harder, but oh, one will make life harder, one will make life. There's so much on the line. Eternal life and eternal death. The point of verse 12 then is that wisdom rewards the wise, but the fool must suffer alone. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Eternal life and eternal death, we each bear personal responsibility for choosing sin or choosing righteousness. We bear responsibility and thus bear the reward and or the, cons- or the consequences What's interesting about Proverbs 9, well, in this way, it sort of ends abruptly, right? We're kind of sitting there like, man, which way is he going to go? I'm kind of curious about this dude. Which path did he choose? But the reality is that Proverbs 9 is not in the Bible so that we could sort of uh, kind of watch somebody else from afar, right? Proverbs 9 is actually putting us at the crossroads and asking, which invitation will you accept? Which party will you attend? Will you choose wisdom or folly? Will you choose life or death? Will you choose the bread of life or stolen water and bread eaten in secret? Let's pray together. Lord God, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have sent your son Jesus into this world to become the bread of life for us and to shed his blood so that if we believe in his self-sacrificial work, we might have eternal life. Lord, for those in Christ this morning, I pray that, they would, that your spirit would persevere them in walking in wisdom, that you would guard their hearts from temptation and from foolishness and folly. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.